Our text then this morning is Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Luke, like I've said, is a written by, is a 24 chapter long book written by Luke. Luke is not one of the apostles, but traditionally this book has never been contested as having been authored by Luke. Uh, together, you know, you hear sometimes people talk about who wrote the most of the New Testament, and oftentimes people's response is Paul. Paul wrote just so many books in the New Testament. And the reality is, Paul did write 13 letters, I believe, of the New Testament. If you know, there's 27 books of the New Testament. If you take out Hebrews, because we're not sure who wrote that, that leaves 26. That means Paul wrote half of the books of the New Testament. That's a lot of the New Testament, right? He wrote half of the books of the New Testament. Until you turn to Philippians, Colossians, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, and you see they're three or four chapters long. When it comes to content-wise, Luke actually wrote the most of the New Testament. He wrote the entire Gospel of Luke, which is 24 chapters, and the Acts of the Apostles or the Acts of the Holy Spirit, as some like to call it, or the Acts, as I like to call it, the Acts of the resurrected Jesus Christ through His people by the power of the Holy Spirit. Luke wrote that as well. That's 28 chapters. So all in all, Paul has written several chapters of the New Testament. Paul is a prolific... Or Paul, Luke. Did I say Paul? I'm going to get mixed up on that. Luke <laughs> wrote a significant portion. He wrote the most percentage-wise of the New Testament. Together it makes up more than one-fourth of the New Testament. So if he wrote this much, kind of as an introduction, we want to talk about who is Luke and what gives him the authority to write so much of our New Testament. There's three other places in your Bible you can flip to that give us a little background on just how Luke gets involved. Colossians chapter 4, verse 14. We'll start in verse... uh, 12, this is, this is Paul writing to the church at Colossae, and this is in his closing remarks. He's describing, he's giving kind of his, uh, his ending of his letter. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in the, all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Verse 14, Luke the beloved physician greets you, as does Demas. Luke is a close acquaintance of the Apostle Paul. When we did our sermon on what is the Bible, we talked about that all the New Testament letters have a certain apostolic relationship to them. Luke is not one of the Apostles. Luke is not a direct disciple of Jesus Christ and being one of the twelve. Luke is a Gentile. His name is a Gentile name. He's not, even, he's not Jewish. But he becomes a believer in Christ 
and becomes a companion of Paul. Also in 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul mentions he's there with Luke. And in Philemon chapter, verse 24, not chapter, Philemon verse 24, Luke also is there with Paul. And we have many sections in the book of Acts that are typically called the we sections. And it's where this interesting turn in the narrative comes along as describing all that Paul is doing. And then it says, we. There's this we, and we did this. We went here next. And in those portions, you can tell that there is someone, the the writer of this narrative is now entered entered into the storyline as a companion of Paul. And this is the person, Luke, who writes our letter, this book. This is written in the early 60s, likely, A.D., um, and Luke has spent a lot of time gathering his information and a lot of it coming probably from his travels with Paul. It's addressed to a guy named Theophilus. We know that uh, Luke and Acts go together because if you also wanted to flip to Acts chapter 1, you see here Acts chapter 1 verse 1, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So Luke Acts are really volume 1, volume 2 of all that Jesus is doing and has done. The gospel is kind of all these things that have been accomplished in his ministry and work on the earth. And then Acts is all that Jesus is doing through his church by the power of the Holy Spirit up until the end of the writing with Paul's first imprisonment. So the, this, as we head into this, there's, there's so much content to the book of Luke. We can't take a lot of time going through an outline. It would have 60 different sub-points to the outline. But a general outline of the book of the Luke, when, when Luke says he wants to write an orderly account, there is a system that he wants to go through. And it's just simply the arrival of Christ, the ministry of Christ, the discipleship of Christ, and the salvation of Christ. We have the arrival. If it weren't for the writings of Luke, we wouldn't have the stories of, of the, the virgin birth, the infancy narrative, of, and the John the Baptist narrative. We wouldn't have all of those narratives if it weren't for Luke. He goes into great detail about the arrival of Christ. He goes into detail about the ministry of Christ. After Christ is baptized by John the Baptist, he goes into Galilee and begins to minister and teach. After that, he turns his face towards Jerusalem, and we see the discipleship. Paul, uh, Jesus has now acquired his disciples and he is taking them with them and teaching and discipling them. And then at the end, Luke spends several chapters talking about the salvation of Christ. Christ going to the cross for the salvation of sinners. It's become trendy in our world today to always have a mission statement, a vision statement. Uh, You've probably been exposed to this at some level. This church I know has been exposed to it. You have it on your newsletter you have a mission, a mission and a vision, I think. You have both of them on your newsletter. That it's become very important, trendy, whatever, to, to compile a vision statement or a mission statement. You can go to like whole big workshops that help you figure out how to craft a vision statement. It's maybe been a part of one of those board meetings, one of those like meetings where you get together, Jennifer has, where they get out the great big post-it notes and they say, well, what are we about? And you write it and you spend like two hours crafting one sentence about your mission, your vision. Well, it's very trendy nowadays. It's fine. I, I got nothing against it. But it really, it's not that revolutionary. People have been crafting purpose statements since we began to communicate. For as long as we've been able to talk, we've said, this is what I'm about. Joel, when he was a little boy, we would go outside and, 
and he was just learning language. He, we had those little cozy coops. It's either cozy coop or crazy coop. I can't, it's like C-Z-Y, and I can't tell if it's supposed to be a cozy coop or a crazy coop. I don't know. One or the other. It kind of depends on what mood he's in. But uh, he would get into his crazy coop, and we'd say, what are you doing? And he'd say, I'm going to the grocery store. And he had a purpose. He was going to go somewhere. He's just beginning language, but he would communicate, this is what I'm doing. Either we went to the grocery store a lot, or I don't know, that just stuck in his head. I'm not sure what the reasoning was. But ever since we've learned to communicate, we communicate purpose, vision, mission. This is what I'm about. And what we have from Luke in these first four, four verses is one long sentence about what his purpose in writing this book is. We want to keep this at the forefront of our mind. We don't want to take the Gospels, and sometimes this is what happens, is people cut out you know, this, this life principle from this story, or we take this... Uh, this parable, we twist it all around to have principles for this avenue and this, this specific issue of my life. Luke doesn't leave us in the dark in what he is trying to accomplish in the book of Luke. He says that he has written, there's, and there's so three things. We have the what that he wrote, we have the who and who he wrote it to, and the why. Not complicated. The what, the to who, and the Why? The what that Luke is writing is that he's writing of the things that have been accomplished among us. Luke is of an understanding something has been accomplished. Jesus shows up and Luke is going to write of these things that have been accomplished among us. When it comes to living, he's he's taking these eyewitness accounts, all of these things for these words that have come to him, and he's compiling them and writing them down for us to read. When it comes to the life of Jesus Christ, the life he lived was not done in secret. It wasn't like Jesus, you know, did some great big work over here in a corner that no one got to see. Acts 26, verse 26, Paul talking to Agrippa there says, these things were not done in a corner. Jesus didn't do his ministry in a corner. He did it corner out of sight. He did it in full view of the world to see all that he has done. And what Luke is doing, he's, he's taking those events And he's writing all that Christ accomplished. But this word accomplished is a very significant word. It wasn't just a telling of this is what Jesus has done, but that in Jesus' doing of these things, something was accomplished. Jesus accomplished something. And what that word is giving us a pointer to is when we look through the meta narrative and we spent all of those weeks studying when is the coming one going to come? From the beginning, the, the proto-euangelion, the first gospel, Genesis 3.15, the curse of the serpent is that the coming seed of the woman, you will bruise his heel and he will crush your head. He will bruise or crush your head. And from that moment on, all of, all, every God-fearing person is looking for when is this snake crusher coming? When is the, the seed of Abraham coming? When is the, the king in the line of David? When is he coming? And Luke writes about Jesus, all these things that have been accomplished among us. Something has been accomplished. There are many specific Old Testament prophecies that are in this book, but likely Luke is just writing as a general picture of, look what has been accomplished. The one we've been looking for has arrived. The one that we've been looking for has shown up. 
Philip Graham Ryken says this, he says, This is what we need as well. A sure and certain knowledge of Jesus Christ and the salvation that comes through faith in Him. We need to know what Jesus accomplished. We need to know the perfection of His virgin birth, the obedience of His sinless life, the wisdom of His profound teaching, and the power of His divine miracles. We need to know these things because they prove that He is the Son of God. And we need to know what Jesus did to save us from the wrath of God. We need to know that He suffered and died on the cross for our sins. And we need to know that He was raised from the dead to give eternal life to all who trust in Him. And we need to know that He has ascended to heaven where He rules over all things for the glory of God. Luke writes to tell us of what has been accomplished in the life of Jesus. Jesus says, and He's quoted in Luke 19.10, that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Luke writes to talk about what has been accomplished. Now, the to who is this Theophilus guy, right? We've written to you most excellent Theophilus. Now, this is not, I'm, I'm being dangerous with this reference because not many, unfortunately, get it. This is not because Bill and Ted succeeded in going back in time and have convinced Oh, Andy got it, <laughs> that this is the most excellent Theophilus. This is not, the, not that kind of most excellent. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures. Anybody seen that movie besides Andy and I <laughs> loved it? Oh, all right, all right, excellent. So, no, this is not most excellent. It would be funny if that's what it, no, this is not what it is. This is an official title that he's giving. It's, it's to Festus. Luke uses it in describing Festus. He uses it in describing Felix. It's kind of this Roman provincial most excellent Theophilus. There's this, there's this guy, this uh, likely a real person. Some people try to say, because the name Theophilus would, is broken down. Its etymology is kind of lover or friend of God. You see the, Theos, Greek for God, and you know, Philadelphia, right? Phileos. Philadelphia is city of brotherly love. So you see the Theophilus is, is broken down to friend of or lover of God. But likely this is actually a real guy. But at the same time, Luke knows that this word is being written down for the edification of all who would read. This is, not, this is to a certain guy, but this, either this guy was a believer in Christ who was trying to know more about what he's been taught, or he's a, an inquirer. Maybe he's just a person who wants to know more about Jesus. Either way, this book is written to him. And I want to say the same of for any of us. If you're a believer who wants to just have more certainty to know who Christ is, this book is written for you that you might know what has been accomplished. Or if you're a person who's just questioning, wanting to know what's up with this, what really did happen, this book is for you. Which takes us to the why. Okay, this is the important point. That's the the what, the who, now the why. Verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught, that you may have certainty. What are we doing here? When we gather as a church, when we gather as people and you, fill, you sit down in the pews and I, I get up here and give a sermon, what are we doing? What are we desiring to discuss? Am I trying to discuss ideas that just make us feel better or maybe un- un- uncovering life principles to help us get through our day? Painting magical, beautiful pictures to help us 
swallow the hard realities of life? Am I just trying to powder uh, ourselves for our most comfortable existence or whatever? No, that is not what we are here for. We are here for truth. We are here to take a stance on the truth, on reality itself. Christ is not a grand idea, a grand scheme, or an elaborate fairy tale. The work of Christ comes to us as history. As history. It comes to us as fact. Luke doesn't write these things down to give you some sort of a Grimm's fairy tale for you to base your life upon so that hopefully it all, you know, it's a, a decent life principle. Maybe it'll all work out okay in the end. Luke writes this for certainty so that you can know this Jesus accomplished these things in space-time history, that this Jesus is real. We are here, and Luke writes this to us, so that we can have certainty about truth. The Christian faith was never meant to be a leap into the dark. Have you heard that phrase? A step of faith, a leap into the dark. You don't know how it's going to turn out. Just take the leap of faith. And what is meant by that is you don't know what's going to happen. You're not sure this is going to work, but you're just going to take a a leap of faith. A person stealing second base is taking a leap of faith. They might get out. They might be safe. We don't know. It's a step of faith. And they just kind of step out not knowing what's really going to happen. The Christian faith was never meant to be a leap into the dark. Believing Christianity is not to be some sort of fall experiment. Like, if we were going to get up here and I had Jerry who's, who comes stand up here and I'm going to fall back and we're going to see if I can trust to see if he's going to catch me or not. And, it's like some, and, and Christianity has some sort of, well, you don't know if he's back there or not. You're just going to... He isn't. So I, I'm, glad I, I'm glad I didn't fall. It's not some sort of experiment of just give it a shot and see what happens. That's not what Christianity is. It's not some sort of fall experiment. I know you can't see me. Just trust me. No, Christianity has always been a faith based on evidential truths, on reality. This is what Luke is arguing for, that Theophilus' faith would be strengthened because of the things that have been accomplished and Luke's work in finding out the eyewitnesses that he would have certainty. J.C. Ryle in his commentary on Luke says this, Christianity is a religion built on facts. Facts. Christianity is a religion built on facts. Never, let us never lose sight of this. It came before mankind at first in this shape. The first preachers did not go up and down the world proclaiming an elaborate artificial system of abstruse doctrines and deep principles. They made it their first business to tell people great plain facts. They went about telling a sin-laden world that the Son of God had come down to earth and lived for us and died for us and rose again for us. The gospel, as it was first proclaimed, was far more simple than many make it now. It was neither more nor less than the history of Christ. Let us aim at greater simplicity in our own personal religion. Let Christ be the son of our system and let the main desire of our souls be to live the life of faith in Him and to daily know Him better. Luke's desire in writing down these historical events, what Christ has accomplished, is that we would have certainty. 
that our faith is not some leap into the dark, some guesswork about maybe this is real, maybe this isn't. He's writing it as history that we would have solid foundation to step on. Anybody seen the movie Indiana Jones and the, I don't know, one of the three, I can't, maybe it's the uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. You guys remember that series? You remember that? Thanks, okay. Bill and Ted's excellent. I guess this is movie day. Uh, but there's this scene, I don't even know which one it was. I watched them when I was younger and I'm not sure they hold up, so I haven't watched them lately. But there's this scene in which Indiana comes to the end of this, this uh, big tunnel and there's this giant canyon between where he is and where he wants to be. The Holy Grail or, or something's over there on the other side. And so he's standing there and all you can see is this giant canyon. But he has this prophecy or this story. I should have looked it up, but I didn't. But basically it was that he's supposed to just take this step of faith and he'd get across to the Holy Grail. And he's looking out here and he's like, there's no way I'm taking that step because, you know, he's just going to fall to his doom. And, of course, the big climatic scene at the end is we get the side shot and Indiana Jones steps out and he drops and his foot lands on this walkway that goes all the way from this side over to the other side that you can't see from his perspective. But then the camera goes out to the side. Oh, Steven Spielberg is really doing his work there. Is that who directed this? No one knows? Okay. And he goes to the side, and oh, there it was. Oh, so Indiana Jones, he, he took this leap of faith, not knowing, and thank goodness what he thought might, what he didn't know would be there was there. That's not Christianity, okay? That is not what we're doing here. All, all of Christian life is not this moment of you stepping and, boy, I hope when I land, my foot lands on something. No. Luke is saying, look, this is what's here. This is what's happened. This, has been, this is what has been accomplished. And I'm writing these things down that you may have certainty. The path from here to there is plainly visible for you. Look at it. See it. Study it. Understand it. And have certainty. This is who Jesus Christ is. This is what Jesus Christ has done. This is what He has done for the salvation of your soul. See it clearly what has been accomplished and trust and rest in it. How can we have the full assurance of that faith? How can we have the certainty that what we believe is real? When it comes to Christianity and, and how we're convinced that it's real, sometimes well, people will just say, well, I, just, I, just, it's in, I, I believe it in my heart. I just, I just know. I just know that I know. And you know who else knows what they know? Everybody else in the world knows what they know. I, I just feel it in my heart. Every sinner out there, and us included, every person who's out there living their own way, knows in their heart of hearts this is just what they should do. They're convinced, I know that I know that I know this is okay because it's what I want to do. Christianity is not based upon you just looking inside of yourself, oh, I know that I know that I know. And, and the full assurance of your faith isn't going to be found by looking deeper within yourself. The full assurance of your faith isn't going to be found in your performance either. Well, I know Jesus is real because this is the change he's made in my life. And these things have worked out, and these things have worked out, and this is just what Jesus has done for me. So now I'm assured that Jesus is, is real because of all of this fruit. Do you know how many people there are out there that, that accept Christ and have no beneficial fruit from it? This people group we, we prayed for this morning, coming to Christ is not going to mean just one glorious step after the other. For many people, claiming Christ means ostracizing from your family means being condemned, means being uh, exiled from your community. So fruit is, not the an- the on- fruit is not the answer. How can we be sure? How can we be sure? And Luke tells us the way that you become sure and certain of what Christ has done 
is by looking again and again and again to Christ. The reason why we're going to spend so much time going through the book of Luke is for our certainty. And the way that you get certainty is not looking within, not looking at fruit, looking at Christ. Looking at Christ. This is who He is. This is what He has done. This is what He has done for you in saving sinners. We look to Him. We look to His life, His death, and His resurrection from the dead in real history. These things were accomplished. And Luke, as a good historian, is writing them down for us that we may have certainty that Christ, born of a virgin, comes to earth, lives the life we all should have lived, a sinless life, earns God's pronouncement of righteousness upon Himself, lives the life we should have lived, dies the death that we deserve on a cross, bearing the wrath of God that was meant for us, takes it upon Himself is resurrected from the dead three days later, Romans tells us, for our justification. These things were not done in a corner. These things were done in full view of everyone. And Luke writes them down, and he finishes in Acts, that everyone who repents and trusts in this work, who calls upon his name, shall be saved. Paul, Luke, I keep saying Paul, and I apologize. Luke, Luke writes these things that we would have certainty in what Christ has accomplished and what he has done for us in real time, in real history, as a real savior for real sinners like you and like me. Let's pray. Father, I ask you'd give us eyes to see this grand reality that as we gather and as we put our trust in you, it isn't putting our faith upon some fairy tale or some um, storyline that we find interesting it comes to us as history this is who you are this is what you have done god give us eyes to see it that we would turn from our sin and trust in christ trust in his work for us and and live in the certainty not in ourselves not in the world around us but in the certainty of who you are and who you are for us in Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.